You are listening to a message from Foothills Church in Miraville, Tennessee. More information about Foothills Church can be found online at foothillschurch.com. We are uh, in the book of Acts chapter 6, and I appreciate you praying for the team. Uh, you may not know this, but London and England, uh, so far from God, uh, the years have created just a, a chasm between what they were foundationally, uh, spiritually, and where they are today. If you're in your 20s, upper 20s, there's a 95% chance that you have never met a Christian in your entire life. That just seems crazy around here because you bump into Christians all the time. But if you're in your 20s, there's a 95% chance you've never met a Christian. So there's a lot of pressure on some of the team. Think about you being the only representation of what someone would know as a follower of Jesus. And so they met you, and then they went away and said, hey, I met a Christian. They are, and they just laid that out there based on what they knew of you and your life and your attitudes. That just feels like a lot of pressure. So we appreciate your prayers as we uh, travel and represent the gospel of Jesus in, in London this week. Now, as we continue through the early chapters of the book of Acts, we are continuing to see these foundational beliefs and principles, what we might call patterns that are developing all throughout the book of Acts as Luke is writing them for us. This new church, this new idea of a church is, is just being formed and, and how, it's, how it's developing and becoming culturally in its DNA. Uh, Luke is writing these patterns for us and teaching us what the church is and what the church should do. We begin in Acts 1 where Jesus sort of begins this this thing with Acts chapter 1 verse 8, when he lays out a foundation and a DNA of what he wants the church to be and what he wants the church to do before the church is even birthed in Acts 2, when he says, power is going to come from you from on high, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the world. So Jesus says, even before this church's birth, I want this DNA, I want this this idea of what it means to go and to make and to send and to multiply out from where you are. This is going to, he wants to speak this into the disciples right now, even before the church happens. And then we see in Acts chapter 2, that power from on high does come. And those 120 disciples of Jesus in that room are filled with the Spirit, and the Holy Spirit comes. Peter begins to speak and preach the gospel, and 3,000 people come to faith that day. In Acts chapter 3, we see Peter and, and, uh, and John seeing a crippled man, and, and he heals this crippled man, and when he begins to walk and to talk and to share his faith. Peter begins to preach again as he is being persecuted. And we see in Acts 4 that 5,000 men now have come to faith in Christ, plus women and children. And then in chapter 5, we see the first problem come up in a church. A husband and wife lie about the money that they gave to the church, and they drop dead. Now just think about that for a minute. We just took up the offering. What if everybody who like didn't give out of a pure heart or didn't give to, what if they all just dropped dead right now? That doesn't, yeah, that doesn't sound so fun, does it? 
But lots of people came to Christ after that happened. Wow, that makes sense. Then Peter, or then Luke goes on to say in, 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 in Acts 5.14, more than ever believers were added to the Lord, multitudes of both men and women. What he's saying is there are so many followers of Jesus now, we can't count them anymore. 120 to 3,000, 5,000 plus. Now they're just everywhere. Multitudes of people coming to Christ. And then in chapter six, where we are today, we see the second issue that comes up to, to kind of rub against this newly formed church that is now already a mega church in just a few months. And we learn the patterns that we are to emulate even today. So let's read the first verse of chapter 6. Now in these days, when the disciples were increasing in number, a complaint by the Hellenists arose against the Hebrews because their widows were being neglected in the daily distribution, and this is a distribution of food. Now again, we catch the, we catch the theme. One of the main themes of all the book of Acts is the expansion and the growth of the early church. All those things I just listed, and then we get to chapter 6. Now, in these days when the disciples were increasing in number. The idea of, of Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the world, this is developing. And, and they haven't left Jerusalem and Judea yet, but the numbers of disciples are amazingly increasing. But with the growth of people, while that is a blessing, more people have the potential for more what? You can speak. More problems, more issues. Now, I know not you guys, but the 8.30 and the 10 o'clock crowd, that's, that's who we're talking about. More people can create more challenges, more problems, more issues. Every person brings with them some stuff, right? So in the midst of this, we've got stuff that's happening already in the first few months of this early church between two different cultures. Now Luke tells us exactly who it is and where the problem stems. It comes from the Hellenist or the Hellenistic Jews and the Hebrews or the Hebraic Jews. Now the Hebraic Jews were Hebrews or Jews that were born in Jerusalem, Judea. They worshiped at the temple. They spoke Hebrew or some form of Aramaic. They, they were born in the land of their forefathers. They were going to die in the land of their forefathers and ancestors and be buried in that land. They consider themselves the pure Jews, the race of purity and everything about the holiness and righteousness and spiritual privileges that that brought on. The Hellenistic Jews were still Jews, but they were raised outside the land of Jerusalem and Judea. They were raised in different cities that were not Jewish. They were in Greek cities or spoke Greece, uh, Greek, and they had Greek culture with them, and they wore Greek clothes, and they just had a different culture about them. And they were beginning to move back to Jerusalem. And as they moved back to Jerusalem, there was a clash Maybe some of them wanted to die in Jerusalem so they could be buried there in Judea in the land of their forefathers. But for whatever reason, these Hellenistic, these Greek culture Jews were now mixing with these Hebraic Jews. And there was a rub. Superior versus inferior. 
We're the one true, pure group. You're the fringe, the Johnny-come-latelys. You're in, but you're in on the fringe. You're not in the holy of holy places. I mean, there was a divide between these two cultures. But then something new happened. People from each one of these groups started following Jesus Christ and becoming disciples of Christ. But as they became Christians and as they became disciples of Jesus, they brought in some of their old prejudices and biases into their new faith. Now, the Hellenistic, who already feel like we're not included, we're on the back row, we're on the fringe, we're never really included in the inner circle of things, their widows are not getting the right kind of food or as much food or the quality of food that the Jewish, Hebraic widows were getting. Well, my goodness. Doesn't that sound like an issue? I mean, well, that's an issue. Church is ready to go into all kinds of stuff over issues, and here we got widows not getting the same, and it becomes an issue. Luke is mentioning an important pattern that he wants us to learn and he wants us to learn for today and to embrace. The first pattern that I want us to see today is the church has always been multicultural and multi-ethnic. It has always been multicultural and multi-ethnic. We read in Acts chapter 2 a few weeks ago that when the Spirit of God came, they, all the people were hearing the gospel preached in their own language. The list of cultures that are present in those few verses in the Acts chapter 2 narrative, there are 18 cultures present in that moment. 18. As a matter of fact, Acts chapter 2 says, devout men from every nation under heaven were there. So I want you to see that the church was birthed, it started, its foundation was right out of the gate, multi-ethnic and multicultural. And while that is true, the caveat or the note to that truth and that pattern is the church has always struggled with being multicultural and multi-ethnic. From the day it was birthed, it was a struggle. We're in Acts chapter 6, and the church still isn't out of Jerusalem when Jesus told them to get out of Jerusalem, Judea, and get to Samaria in the uttermost part. Six chapters, we're still there in Jerusalem with the Jews. And the Jews can't even get along. We've always struggled with multi-ethnic, multicultural issues throughout the history of the church. In a former church I was at, this church had a Christian school connected to it. And it seemed like we were always having conversations in staff meeting when the student pastor would say something like, it doesn't seem like the Christian school students are assimilating well with the public school students. And it just seemed, wow, they were basically from the same race. And then there seemed to be some kind of rub culturally in that. There's always an issue 
when multicultural, multi-ethnic things come to play. I consistently told my children growing up, when you go to school, look for the new people. Look for the people in the cafeteria who are sitting by themselves and go sit with them. Now, I've only been in Blount County three weeks. I moved here three weeks ago. I am the least expert in this culture. But I'm wondering, I'm beginning to wonder if there's some kind of cultural rub between Maryville and Alcoa. I don't know. I'm new. Is there some kind of cultural rub between the city schools and the county schools? I'm not sure. But anytime there is a cultural or ethnic separate, there is potential for conflict. The church has always struggled with that. And most of these people are the same race. I mean, I get that, that, that you know, they say, well, one time a year, that Maryville, that's a big deal. I'm sure it is. I'm sure it is. But this isn't like, like Jews and Palestinians, right? I mean, it's, the, 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 these, think about the cultural issues that are playing out all around us. And what, what will we do if those cultural things become more pronounced and common, which they're happening all over the place in our culture? What about when Hispanics and, and, and Japanese and Southeast Asians and South Asians and Muslim back, background people like Iraqis and Saudis and Syrians and refugees flood into our community and our church? What, what if the government decides when refugees get off the airplane in Blount County, let's, not, let's just flood them right into Blount County? Some of them are followers of Jesus who are leaving because of religious persecution in their country. Will we, as Jesus followers, be the first people in line to say, welcome. God loves you, and we love you. Why would we do that? Because we're followers of Jesus. Jesus left his cushy, comfy home of heaven to come to find us, to come after us. We've always been, he's always been about multi-ethnic, multiculture. Pattern number two, verse two through six. Luke continues, the problem, the, the 12 summoned the full number of the disciples and said, it's not right that we should give up preaching the word of God to serve tables. Therefore, brothers, pick out from among you seven men of good repute, full of the spirit and of wisdom in whom we will appoint to do this duty. But we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. And what they said pleased the whole gathering. And they chose Stephen, a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit, and Philip and Procurus and Nicanor and Timon and Pumbaa and Nicholas. I see if you were listening. Parmenas and Nicholas, a proselyte of Antioch. So they picked seven men who with a Greek Name Wouldn't that be important that we pick Greek guys with that Hellenistic Jewish background to care and be on board with this issue? Very wise. So the leaders, the leaders hear this problem, they understand it, and the leaders must resolve the problem. 
in this early church, we're seeing a pattern that leadership must be about solving and resolving, identifying, and wisely resolving those conflicts and issues. When there are problems, and there are problems that happen, the more people you get, the more what? Potential challenges and issues. Leaders must engage. They must engage. It's great to pray. It's great to let God work it. It's great to see how they're going to fall. But leaders must engage into action and resolve conflicts and problems in the church. That's why they're leaders. So they say they're, they're going to resolve it by picking seven men because they, these leaders, the leaders' primary focus is prayer and the ministry of the word. Prayer and the ministry of the word. We need leaders who will pray and we need leaders who will teach and preach the faithfulness of the word of God. While the leaders should serve, and they do, and while they should be involved in the physical and emotional needs of others, they must give their primary attention to prayer and the preaching and teaching of the word. The apostles told the people to choose seven. The people thought this was a good idea, and they chose seven men full of the Spirit, full of wisdom. Later, as the church develops into the epistles and Paul begins to take the church to Samaria and the uttermost parts of the world and the church gets set up, he uses this model for how churches would be set up and churches would be set up for all of history. There would be leadership called elders who would be responsible for praying and the ministry of the word and for leadership. And then there would be people who would be deacons, servants, those who would care about the physical, emotional, and spiritual needs of the church body, church family of the congregation. All should be doing this servant. Every one of us should be embracing this model of what it means to be a deacon or a servant. While we at Foothills Church, small groups are the first line of caring for the needs of you and others. Deacons serve in this capacity to care for the needs of our partners and people, our community. They visit people when they are in the hospital. They are present at funeral homes. They help with the physical needs of this building and the community, and they pray. So Luke wants us to know the insignificance in this pattern of leadership. And when the leaders do it well, faithfully teaching and preaching the word of God, resolving conflict and praying, God's kingdom can continue to expand. And then pattern three. The church has always embraced the needs of the under-resourced. Always. Throughout history, there's a theme that runs throughout the entire Bible. From the Old Testament to the Gospels, Jesus models it, and into the book of Acts here, and into the entire New Testament. God followers, Jesus followers, must care about, embrace the needs of the poor, the hurting, the disenfranchised, the marginalized and outcast of our society and world. We must engage the poor, the orphan, the widow, and the alien. God's big four. 
We see this pattern happening in the new church and we see it continually happening as it happened all throughout the Bible. Acts chapter 2, 45, this underlying theme, they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as they had need. Acts chapter 3, we see a crippled man who was healed. It wasn't just a crippled man in this day. In this day, there were no disability checks. There, there, there was not social security. There, there were no unemployment checks. If you were crippled, you begged. It was the only way for you to survive is to beg. So when Peter and John, when they healed this man to walk, yes, he became a walking individual, but now he began to embrace job, employment, work, and providing for himself and his family. It was a holistic healing. And then Acts chapter 4, verse 34, there was not a needy person among them because they were selling their stuff and distributing to anyone as they had need. And here we see in chapter 6, learning that feeding the hungry, in this case particularly widows, was the normal part of this early church. James, the half-brother of Jesus, who was a skeptic before Jesus resurrected from the tomb, then James went, maybe he was telling the truth. He becomes a follower of his half-brother, Jesus, and becomes a leading figure in the Jerusalem church. Says in James chapter 1, verse 27, religion that God our Father accepts as pure and faultless is this, colon. Now, I want to just think about this for a second. I don't know, I don't have to know what follows after that colon. When James, the half-brother of Jesus, the leader of the Jerusalem church of this day, says religion that God our Father accepts as pure and faultless. You don't have to pray about it. You don't have to think about it. You don't have to debate it theologically. Pure and faultless. If, 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 no matter what it says after this, I know as a follower of Jesus, whatever it says after this, I need to make my life about this. This is pure. This is faultless. This is right. This is good. As a follower of Jesus, whatever comes after this is something that I need to make of utmost importance in my life. And he says, what pure and faultless is this, to look after orphans and widows in their distress. Really, James? You, you could have put anything after that colon. Anything. And this is the paramount truth that you want us to know. Look after orphans. Yes, because God says he is a father to the fatherless. And I want my people to be that as well. Represent me well in that. Throughout Scripture, God mentions the poor, the orphan, the widows, the aliens. And aliens could be aliens, foreigners, immigrants, refugees. There are over 2,000 verses about this one truth. It's at the top of the two or three topics in the number of verses committed to it in all the Bible. Caring for the poor, the orphan, the widow, and the alien. God is dedicated to the care and protection of these people, and he wants his followers to be dedicated to their care as well. These are basically the vulnerable and powerless and hurting and outcast and the needy of our society. 
they have little resources or assets, and they don't have the ability or the power to get those resources or assets. Today, these four categories could certainly be expanded to the refugee, the immigrant, the migrant worker, the homeless, some single parents, the elderly, babies in the womb, children being taken into sex trafficking. This category covers any vulnerable or socially powerless person in our community or in our world. I want you to care about them. I want you to care about people that no one else cared about. If Jesus was criticized about anything in his gospel is that he kept hanging out with these kind of people and it ticked off the religious people. How often are we condemned and criticized for hanging out with the riffraff? Not that we would call them that, but that society would. How much have you hung out with homeless people this week? How much have you connected with a migrant, an immigrant, a refugee? Is your family knowing about these things? We must engage them. It's a big deal in the kingdom of God, and it's a big deal at Foothills. And we have easy on-ramps for you to connect to the vulnerable in our community. One of our ministries to the homeless is called Family Promise, and we get to walk alongside and provide meals and read or help with homework to children and build relational environments with them to care for them. Mandy Jones, one of our partners, is our leader of this ministry it's coming up in, in, in August, I believe, the next opportunity. We're developing a comprehensive orphan care ministry that includes safe families, foster care, adoption, sponsoring compassion children, and loving on and caring for the parents and families who do this. I hope it's the most comprehensive, inclusive, intentional ministry in this area. Another piece of this caring for, for children and, and the at-risk children are, is a ministry called Kids Hope that you may have heard of. And with our partnership with Rockford Elementary, one church partners with one uh, low-income at-risk elementary school, believing that if mentors would come in and walk alongside and care for these children, their lives would be changed. We have prayer partners who pray for the People who mentor, who can't mentor because of their job or some other reason, but they can pray over the mentor and pray for them and the child and the meeting. Small groups can adopt these classrooms and be the class moms for some of these teachers who don't have 20 class moms providing every little need that they have in wipes and pencils and paper and Kleenexes. We could pick up that gap. July 30th is our Kids Hope training for mentors. I'm signed up. I, I would love for some of you to join me and us and the team that will be part of that. You can go to our website in the outreach tab and click on the local ministries and hit the serve button and just check which ministries you would like to learn more about or know. But we must engage the under-resourced of our community. Now, while these patterns may seem unrelated, multi-ethnic, multi-culture, leadership who's handling issues and conflicts and staying focused on prayer and the ministry of the words and serving for the deacons and caring for the under-resourced. What, what is the thread 
that continues to bind these patterns together? What's the common ground that covers all of the book of Acts and really all of Scripture as it relates to followers of Jesus? I think it's so important that we understand this one piece of how all of this connects together. There is a common thread, and that thread is simply this, being others-focused. Think about it. Being others-focused. Jesus models it by leaving heaven and coming and all of his uncomfort and discomfort and persecution and suffering and beatings and death. Why? For you. For me. To, to tackle and take care of our most greatest need, which is sin, that separates us from God. Others focused. A mature disciple of Jesus is one who is following Jesus, being changed by Jesus, and committed to the mission of Jesus. The mission of Jesus is always about other people. Other people. There was a bent toward Americans and people as human beings as a whole, born into our sin nature. We consistently and continually have a desire for self. Self-centered, self-focused. What are my needs? What are my wants? What are my desires? And when a Christ follower goes out of, out of that and comes to being others-focused, there should be such a radical difference that I care about what others' needs are, what their desires are, what their longings are, what's going on with them. A, a follower of Jesus is one who takes the great commandment, go and make disciples of all nations, uh, the great commission, and then the great commandment, love God and love others and smashes them together so they can go and make disciples loving God with all their heart and and loving other people with all their heart. And we embrace the needs, the longing, the desires of others. And as we do, something incredible changes in us and transforms in our hearts. And it transforms the kingdom of God. Others focused. If you wanted to take discipleship and put steps to it or, or levels to it. We could think about following Jesus as being an infant or a child or a young adult or a parent, kind of going around a wheel. And we know that infants and children and teenagers, they're primarily focused on what or whom? Themselves. Now, everybody under 18, that was like really quick for adults because we kind of know a little bit about that, but we're not judging at all. I'll do that in a minute. So you come around and, and you're focused on self, and then there's a hinge. There's something that, 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 that crosses us over to being a young adult or a parent, and takes us to another level. It changes our hearts and minds. It changes our attitudes. It changes our perspective. And to me, that hinge is I'm leaving from being self-focused and self-centered to being others-focused and others-centered. 
And it's in that one thing, that one commitment, that one change, that one transformation of my heart and mind and soul that changes me to something different. I, I leave my own world and I go to the world of the kingdom and the kingdom of God and the kingdom things of God. And I begin seeking first the kingdom in a way that I never have before. It's that hinge. Others focus, move us from this side, infant, children, teenager, to this side, young adults and parents. Now, I don't know about you, but when I've, I have three biological children and a whole lot of other children that lived in my house. And, and when my children were born, I don't ever remember like my babies waking up at 3 a.m. in the morning hungry, wet their diaper, needed it changed, but them going, you know what? It's 3 a.m. Mom and dad are probably sleeping. This is not a good time for them. They've had a hard week. I think I'll just hold this until morning. They can change me then, feed me then at their convenience. Or my daughters, when they came time for prom, they didn't come up to me and say, hey, Dad, it's prom and I'd really like a new dress, but I don't need one. I've got a closet full of dresses. I can just wear something or borrow from somebody. I certainly don't want to put our family finances in jeopardy. So whatever's best for the family, I'm good with. Or any of them, when they turn 16, say, you know what? Dad, I just want you to know, I know I'm 16, I don't need a car. You, I'm fine if mom takes me places, or my friends can take me, or you know what, I just won't do as much stuff. Whatever's best for the family. I don't want to do anything to hurt our budget. Or go to the refrigerator or the pantry and go, oh my gosh, there's so much food. I have so many choices. Mom and dad, thanks for all the choices. I don't even know what to choose. There's so much food in this house. So much to eat. Or college. This is my dream college. This is my dream place. And I look at the price. Oh my gosh. Oh no, dad, this is it. This is what God's calling me here, yeah. Well, you and God work it out then. <laughs> but that's okay, Dad. If that doesn't fit into our family budget, if it doesn't work out for you and Mom and our future, I can do whatever. Now, maybe you had kids that were different than mine. Maybe they did all of those things. That's awesome. Congratulations. But there's one thing that I know about infants, children, and teenagers. They don't think about others a lot. They'll get there. You know what helps get them there sooner than later? Parents who model it. Parents who take them on mission trips. Parents who expose them to the other side of the tracks. Parent who, 
who engage them and embrace the needs of others and something happens to their hearts. But we gotta model that. And the hinge, the hinge, moms and dads, parents, teenagers, children, the hinge of your life that takes you from here being self-focused, my needs, my desires, to others' needs, others' desires, the marginalized, the outcast, the fringe, the person sitting at school by themselves. That attitude that I, I want to sit by them. I want them to feel like they belong. That they're not alone. That, 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 that hinge, that hinge right here is that service, servant, other-focused hinge that radically transforms our life, our hearts, our perspective, our own needs once. It transforms it so much at that hinge that we're never the same again. Embracing multicultural, multi-ethnic means sacrificing, surrendering some of our own needs and desires and being others focused. Embracing the under-resourced means getting uncomfortable off my couch while I help them get a couch. Having leadership who models it, preaches it, holds up the word of God as the truth, the way, the message that changes and transforms lives. We have that, thank God. And when all of this comes together, when the synergy of all of this comes together, look what happens in verse 7. It's awesome. We're right back to our theme. We kind of off-ramp, and we're coming right back. Verse 1, we're on the highway. We off-ramp to deal with this. He lays out patterns, and he on-ramps right back to the theme, which is what? And the Word of God continued to increase. And the number of disciples did what? Multiplied. We always talk about, oh, we don't get to see what we see in Acts. I want to be a part of something like that. You can't bypass the patterns and get the outfit you want. The patterns are here teaching us, modeling right before us. If we embrace them the way they were being embraced, I believe the word of God will increase and the number of disciples will multiply in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the other most parts of the earth. The patterns of the early church must be our patterns. Other focus must be our heart. Amen? Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you for these words and for the modeling of your church and for all that you have invested in us to go, to love, to focus on others, to think about others, to care about them. 
Lord, I pray that you would increase our sensitivity to the homeless, to the outcast, to the hurting, to the broken, to the marginalized, to the poor, the orphan, the widow, the refugee. Lord, help us individually, but, but collectively as a church body. Embrace these needs so that we can, we can embrace both the word and deed ministry. Luke said in Luke 24, 19, Jesus was a prophet powerful in word and deed. When we model this, when we embrace it, when we, we just intentionally hold on to this pattern of scripture, of word and deed, amazing things happen. Miraculous things happen. The kingdom has expanded. Our hearts are growing. Lord, let that be so of us, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening. More information about Foothills Church can be found online at foothillschurch.com.